Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Back in uh, April, our family moved into what we hope is our kind of forever home. Um, it's in this old South Austin neighborhood with big oak trees, a beautiful backyard that our boys and uh, the dog I reluctantly got um, over uh, COVID. But now I love, I'm like a meme now. Um, you've seen those like dads that like didn't want the dog and then the dog only cuddles the dad. Like that's me now. So that's fun. Um, but the house was built in 1968. Um, and it's actually the second oldest home in, in kind of the whole area. And since Amy and I were previously in apartments mostly, um, this is my first time living in an old house. Um, and I love so many things about it, but it's also got some kind of quirks. Uh, one quirk is that the plumbing pipes are all made out of cast iron um, instead of PVC. Some of you are laughing because you know what that means. Um, so over time, cast iron crumbles and cracks, right? And it kind of flakes and flakes and eventually kind of closes in or caves in. Um, this has happened on one end of our house. Um, it's not really uh, cost-effective for us to do anything about it currently. Um, but so it's led to us having to make some adjustments, right? Which one is that our uh, washer, our clothes washer drain line um, has been rerouted. It just goes into our backyard. It just kind of drains in our backyard. Um, and then the bathroom on that end of the house has become kind of a, a number one only bathroom, um, if you know what I mean by that. But here's the thing. Even though we didn't build the house, um, I, it was built 20 years before I was born, even though we didn't live in the house for the first 53 years it was around, we are living in it now. And that means we are responsible for taking care of it, right? Even though we didn't break the pipes, even though we didn't wear out the roof or put holes in the walls or anything like that, we are now responsible for fixing them. Now, why on earth am I telling you this? Because the same thing is true for everyone who lives in our world house today especially those of us that live here in the United States. We did not build this world house. We did not build this country. We did not directly cause most of the brokenness that exists inside of it, but it's our responsibility now. In her groundbreaking book, Cast, Isabel Wilkerson compares America to an old house. Here's what she says. With an old house, the work is never done, and you don't expect it to be. America is an old house. We can never declare the work over. Wind, flood, drought, and human upheavals batter a structure that is already fighting whatever flaws were left unattended in the original foundation. Now, when you live in an old house, you may not want to go in the basement after a storm to see what the rains have wrought. But choose not to look, however, at your own peril. The owner of an old house knows that whatever you are ignoring will never go away. 
Whatever is lurking will fester whether you choose to look or not. Ignorance is no protection from the consequences of inaction. I'm going to say that again because that one's important. Ignorance is no protection from the consequences of inaction. Whatever you are wishing will gnaw at you until you gather the courage to face what you would rather not see. We in the developed world are like homeowners who inherited a house on a piece of land that is beautiful on the outside, but whose soil is unstable, loam, and rock, heaving and contracting over generations, cracks patched, but the deeper ruptures waved away for decades, centuries even. Many people may rightly say, I had nothing to do with how all this started. I have nothing to do with the sins of the past. My ancestors never attacked indigenous people, never owned slaves. And yes, not one of us was here when this house was built. Our immediate ancestors may have nothing to do with it, but here we are. The current occupants of a property with stress cracks and bowed walls and fissures built into the foundation. We are the heirs to whatever is right or wrong with it. We did not erect the uneven pillars or joists, but they are ours to deal with now. And any further deterioration is, in fact, on our hands. None of us were here when this house was built, but we are responsible for it now. I believe that is true for every person, but it's especially true for those of us who call ourselves Christians, because we have been tasked with bringing God's justice into the world, of repairing the brokenness that exists, whether we were the cause of it or not. We are in the middle of a teaching series called God of Justice, and over the last few weeks, we've worked our way through Scripture to see how this thread of justice ties God's great story together, and it does so in a magnificent way. Because justice is actually a central theme throughout the biblical narrative, talked about hundreds of times in both the Old and New Testaments. This is why the prophet Isaiah so famously said, the Lord is a God of justice. That's where we got the little series title. Justice is at the core of who God is and what God is about because injustice is anything that gets in the way of humanity experiencing and expressing God's greatest desire for us, which is love. Injustice gets in the way of that. So last week, our teaching pastor, Ivor Robinson, who's also the lead pastor of our sister church on campus at UT called Moon Tower, she talked about how Jesus brought justice into the life of the Samaritan woman at the well. Great message. And it's one of the many times that Jesus pursued justice during his time on earth. But I want you guys to know, he didn't just do it himself. He didn't do it in isolation. He called all of his followers, both then and then us now, to partner with him in this work. And he taught us what it looks like to pursue justice in this broken world. Now, my favorite of these teachings from Jesus about justice is in the 25th chapter of Matthew's account, Jesus' life. You can turn there. Um, the verses will also be on the screen, but if you want to follow along, Bible, phone, anything like that, Matthew 25. But before we dive into the text, I want to set the scene for us a little bit. This teaching from Jesus about justice, it occurs during the final few days of his life on earth. Here are the verses actually immediately following the sermon we're about to talk about. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. 
So the Passover was on a Thursday. That's when the famous Last Supper took place. Jesus is then arrested later that what's called Monday, Thursday night. He's killed on the cross on Good Friday, and then he rises from the grave on Easter Sunday. So all that to say, this sermon from Jesus in Matthew 25 is one of, if not the final teachings that Jesus gives publicly before his death and resurrection. Obviously, everything Jesus said was important, but these words stick out because they are some of his very last ones, just two days before he was arrested and eventually killed on the cross. So Matthew 25, we're going to start in verse 31. Here's what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people One from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, this is kind of confusing, so I want to just pause and explain it a little bit. A couple of things to point out in this opening paragraph. So first, the Son of Man, that's kind of a nickname for Jesus. So Jesus is kind of referring himself in the third person here when he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. He's saying, when I come in my glory. This common nickname for Jesus, it's associated with him being the the Messiah, the, the Savior of all humankind. Now, second, Jesus is describing a time of judgment here, the separation of the people, the sheep and the goats, all of that stuff. It most likely occurs after he returns in what's called the second coming, right, which is what he just says when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Now, this is apocalyptic language, and it's found in different places kind of throughout all of Scripture. It's especially concentrated in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. You're probably most familiar with that. Now, we don't have time to kind of get into all of it today, but I did teach through a series a while back Um, ironically called Heaven, Hell, and Other Things We Don't Understand Very Well, where we covered some of this stuff. So you can find it online, Vimeo, YouTube, podcast, anything like that, if you want to go deeper into it. But for our purposes today, I want to make sure that we understand our distance from the original time and place of the biblical authors. We talk about that a lot, right? We talk about how, like, this is old writing. It's in a majorly different culture. So our time and place... Um, uh, this removal that we have from the biblical authors, it's never more apparent than when we're discussing apocalyptic writing. So I want to just say, kind of beware of anyone who tells you they know exactly what all of the apocalyptic writing means, especially when they start connecting current world events to random passages in the Bible. That is a big red flag, just FYI. Okay, back to Matthew 25. Jesus is telling a parable, which he often did, right? A a story to illustrate a larger truth. And he describes divine judgment of humanity inside of this parable. Now, we don't know exactly what that part means, if the situation will kind of literally occur this way, or if Jesus is using an illustration to make a larger point, as he often does. But what we do know is that Jesus is about to tell us what the divine judgment of humanity will be based off of, right? So he's separating the sheep and the goats. The question that we must ask is why? What makes a sheep? What makes a goat? What is this divine judgment based on? Now, this is a lot of text I'm about to read, so hang with me. I'm going to read through all of it, and then we'll kind of circle back and do our best to understand it. So verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, 
and you came to visit me. Then the righteous, the sheep, will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. The purpose, the reasoning behind divine judgment. Jesus lays out four categories of people who are often tossed aside in our society. So the hungry, thirsty, naked can kind of be grouped into simply the poor, the impoverished, people who cannot do those things for themselves. So the four categories we have are the poor, the stranger, which is used a bunch of different times to mean like foreigner, immigrant, refugee, the sick, and the prisoner. Four categories of people who are often on the farthest margins of society that Jesus says are very important. But I want us to notice something else. It's not just that these folks are not valued and should be, or that they're not cared for and should be. It's not even just that we should consider them siblings, right? He calls them brothers and sisters. It's that Jesus explicitly identifies himself with them. This should cause us to pause, right? It's not just, hey, these are fellow humans. It's not even just, these are your brothers and sisters in humanity. Jesus says, they are me. They are me. He says, the way we treat the poor, the stranger, the sick, and the prisoner is how we treat him. He is one with them. Jesus sees himself in these marginalized and oppressed people, and he calls us to see them the same way. Now, this truth is not unique to this passage. In his book called The Galilean Journey, a Catholic priest from San Antonio named Father Elizondo coined the phrase, the Galilee principle. The Galilee principle. Here's what that means. Robert Chow Romero, he's a pastor, immigration lawyer, and professor at UCLA. He wrote about the Galilee principle extensively in an amazing book called Brown Church. I'm going to quote from it a few different times today. Five centuries of Latino-Latina social justice, theology, and identity. Here's what Dr. Romero says about this principle. The Galilean roots of Jesus point to God's preferential option for those of marginalized communities. In Jesus' day, Galilee was a symbol of multiple rejection. Whereas Jerusalem was the center of Jewish, religious, economic, and political life, Galilee was looked down on as cultural backwaters. Based on his understanding of Galilee as a marginalized socio-geographic location in the biblical narrative, Elizondo articulates this Galilee principle. That is this, what human beings reject, God chooses as his very own. What we push to the margins of society, God goes after. 
When God became human in Jesus Christ, God chose to be embodied, to take on flesh as a socially, economically, and politically insignificant Galilean. He did not choose to be born into a rich and prestigious royal family from the capital, but chose to be raised and formed as a Galilean from the further despised town of Nazareth. And when it came, to be, it came time to proclaim the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God, Jesus began in Galilee and dedicated most of his public ministry to the oppressed community that raised him. So listen, I want to say this. This is very important. Although God certainly loves all of humanity equally, Scripture shows us time and time again that God pays unique attention to the poor and the oppressed. And it makes sense, right? Because if God is the loving Father of all people that we believe Him to be, He would naturally show special concern for His kids who are suffering the most, right? If you're a parent, caregiver in this room, you understand that. More than 2,000 Bible verses testify to God's special concern for marginalized people. 2,000 Bible verses. Even though the good news about Jesus is for everyone, it first came to those on the margins of society. Fishermen, farmers, shepherds, a teenage girl. Jesus even kicked off his public ministry by preaching this message. Remember, he stood up in his childhood synagogue and read from the prophet Isaiah. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled and your hearing. That's how he started his ministry. And in Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, he makes the same points again. But this special concern for marginalized people, I think, is most clearly articulated in this parable, this story from Matthew 25 that we're looking at today. Jesus says, we will be judged by God for how we meet the needs of poor and oppressed people, because how we treat them is how we treat Jesus. I love how the early church father, St. Augustine, talked about Matthew 25. Here's what he said. He's quoting it. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I confess that in God's scripture, Augustine says, this has moved me the most. Christ is needy when a poor person is in need. And Christ is hungry when the poor are hungry. To come to the aid of poor people is to come to the aid of Christ. This prominent church father, St. Augustine, says, no passage of Scripture has informed my understanding of who Jesus is and what we are called to do more than this passage. Dr. Romero from Brown Church further expounds on Matthew 25 in this book. He says, in this passage depicting the final judgment, Jesus clearly articulates this preferential option for immigrants, the poor, and all who are disregarded by society. Listen, Jesus takes their side. Not only that, but he identifies so closely with the struggles of the poor that he sees himself in them. If we love him, then we will love the poor. And when we love the poor, we are loving him. According to Jesus, our compassion towards the most vulnerable of society is a barometer of the sincerity of our relationship with him. I'm going to say that one again too. 
our compassion toward the most vulnerable of our society is a barometer of the sincerity of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus is on the side of justice for the poor, the oppressed, and the suffering. Listen, if we are on that side, he's there with us. If we are not, he beckons us to join him there. Let me say it even more directly. If the Christianity that we are proclaiming does not prioritize justice for the marginalized, it is not the Christianity of Christ. It bears no resemblance to what Jesus said or did during his time on earth. Jesus' brother James echoes this truth in his letter to the early church. He writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. N.T. Wright said it a little more vividly a few months ago during a lecture he gave to a huge group of Christian colleges. He said this, thinking that belief in Jesus without working for justice is faith is like saying, because I've cut my toenails, I don't need to worry if my whole foot has gangrene. This is why one of our six markers of following Jesus here at Restore is pursuing justice for the marginalized. It's why we're doing this whole series on it. It's why we just gave $10,000 to people fleeing violence in Ukraine. It's why we have a, a group of Restore family members who are looking to move into Community First Village as missionaries. It's why we visit people in prison and send meals to people who are sick. It's why we pack 300 welcome boxes for Afghan refugees coming to Austin. These are not virtue signals. These are not things that we are trying to get people to look at us and praise us. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it's about. This is what it looks like to follow Christ. Justice is at the core of who God is and what God is about. And claiming the name of Jesus without doing the work of Jesus is blasphemy. I'm so... Deep breaths. I'm so sick of Christians telling me that pursuing justice is, is unbiblical and that we should stick to just, just preaching the gospel. What is the gospel reduced to if it does not include help for the hurting? Is it just a, a get-out-of-hell-free card? Is it just a, a collection of culturally influenced morals? Is it just a set of beliefs that we assent to with our minds but never allow to change our hearts or influence our actions? If the gospel does not include justice for all people, then it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel does not bring good news to both the spiritually and socially broken, then it is not the good news that Jesus preached. Calling justice unbiblical is, is one of the most unbiblical things you could ever say. From Genesis to Revelation, God is pursuing justice for the marginalized and calling his people to join him in that work. Calling us, me and you, to join him in that work. This has been the legacy of God's people since the beginning. And it continues to be our calling today. None of us were here when this world house was built, but we are here now. 
We did not cause all of the brokenness that exists, but we have been tasked with helping fix it. And if you're wondering where to start, I get it. I talked about this a few weeks ago. It's overwhelming. The amount of brokenness and injustice in our world can feel like too much. But if you're looking for a place to start, I don't know, I'd suggest starting with one of these four groups that Jesus talks about. The poor, the stranger, the sick, the prisoner. I'm going to ask the band to come back up, and we're going to finish the gathering this morning by singing a song called For the One. It's a a beautiful song about what it looks like to to love people and to pursue justice. And it, it starts out like this. I want to read you some of the lyrics. Let me be filled with kindness and compassion for the one, the one in whom you love and gave your son for humanity. Increase my love. A few weeks ago, you might remember I said, you can't do everything, but you can do something. Y'all remember that? I believe that to be true, but I want to even narrow it further for us this morning before we sing. I want to call you, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one this week what you wish you could do for everyone. I know you want to, you want to end the war in Ukraine. I know you want to lift every person experiencing homelessness off the streets. I know that. I know you. I know your hearts. But just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. So I want to invite you to stand. As we sing this song together, and then as you leave from here and go about your week, ask God to show you that one, that one that you can pursue justice with. Because you can't do everything, but you can do something. You can't help everyone, but you can help someone. So let's do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. Let's sing together.